0: As a case officer for the CIA, you will focus on clandestinely spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, and handling non-U.S. citizens with access to foreign intelligence vital to U.S. foreign policy and national security decision makers. You will be expected to build relationships based on rapport and trust using sound judgment, integrity, and the ability to assess character and motivation. Case officers spend most of their careers serving in multi-year assignments in a variety of overseas locations. All case officers address a highly diverse and dynamic set of intelligence requirements on country and region-specific issues, as well as transnational issues such as counterterrorism, counterproliferation, and cyber. That's part of the posted job description of a case officer for the CIA. Welcome to episode two of Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GORUCK Media, Our guest today is not a guest at all. It's Emily McCarthy, a former case officer, wife, mom, full-time glue for everything at GoRuck and the love of my life. So on this episode, Rich has taken point and I'll mostly just sit back and smile. She's got a great story to share.
1: It seems appropriate that our second guest on The Glorious Professionals is Emily McCarthy, the original inspiration for the first GoRuck rucksack. I've known Emily for several years, but recently realized that I really don't know much about her background or what roads she's traveled to get where she is today. So welcome, Emily.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: To help me understand and to help the listeners understand, where were you born and where were you raised?
2: Well, right here in Jacksonville, Florida.
1: Local girl makes good.
2: Yes. There's fewer fewer of us, I think, you can find these days. You know, people are always <laughs> like, oh. You're, I didn't know you were from here. So it's a good place.
1: Well, these days, everybody you meet seems to be from another location rather than where they are when you talk to them.
2: Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a good life here. I mean, it's changed a lot. It's grown.
1: So did you go to school in Jacksonville or in Jacksonville Beach?
2: In, in Jacksonville. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually grew up going to schools near where I lived, and um, my mom was a public school teacher for 40 plus years. So she was a big believer in public schools and thought we should go there because if she was going to be teaching there, we should go as well. And so that worked out fairly well up through about middle school. Middle school was kind of a rough time in Jacksonville. Those days there was a desegregation suit going on where they would just bus kids from different neighborhood to, you know, other sides of town. And, you know, I was oblivious to what that meant at the time, but when you think about it now, it's, it's pretty radical that, you know, that was still going on in the eighties and nineties. Right. So kids that I grew up with in in our neighborhood, kind of near this university, we were bused for over an hour to a different part of town. And I have to tell you, like, I learned a lot just by observation in that sixth grade busing (laughs) time that I had, there was a lot of rebellion and Experimentation and things like that. And one time our our bus driver got so upset with the kids that were in the back of the bus starting fires and other things. And I was always sitting in the front, mind you, doing my homework, but we got dropped off at the juvenile uh, detention center and left there. (laughs) He just dropped us off. My neighborhood was a little rough too, right? Mm -hmm. Is what I'm trying to say. And then we got bussed to a rougher neighborhood. For sixth Uh grade, and I actually got into a lot of fights that year. Just trying, yeah, just trying to, you know, just sticking up for myself and others.
1: That's interesting. (laughs) When you were in school, what did you really enjoy?
2: I I loved school. I'm a educator's daughter, so I always loved learning. (laughs) So yeah, I loved everything about school. But I I mean, I love school. I love sports. I didn't like getting in trouble. So it didn't happen very much, but occasionally it did sometimes by accident. I think about third grade, it was like a big deal in public school to like, we had this fence and when we get let out for recess, it was like everybody who was an athlete wanted to line up on this line. It sounds, it makes me sound really old, by the way, this sounds like old school stuff, but it was like, it was like really cutthroat. We'd line up on this line and I, we basically was a race, like run around the fence and who could get back one that day and i i used to pride myself on being always the first girl and sometimes the first kid too and but this one time this boy named josh got really mad at me for beating him and he kicked me in my in the side and i had those damn guess jeans <laughs> cuz they're the only ones that fit me that had the zipper on the side
1: yep. yep remember them and he
2: kicked me so hard that it like cut me you know because mm-hmm. of the zipper and i just remember being really pissed at him and like, I basically fought back. And that's one day I got my name put on the board for that. And I just thought it was really unjust because <laughs> <laughs> I did, I was, I was really annoyed because it wasn't fair, but I just shut up and put my name on the board that day. <laughs> of course, my parents didn't care about my name getting on the board. You know, they trusted me, but
1: they knew you better they than knew. that.
2: Fifth grade becoming a patrol in fifth grade really let my inner nerd and cautiousness shine. Fifth
1: grade <laughs> seems to be a tough grade for a lot of people. I had a problem in fifth grade, Did but you? that's not that's not to talk about tonight.
2: Well, so. <laughs> I'll put that on the list to talk to you later. But um, yeah, so Jacksonville six the middle schools in Jacksonville notoriously, and I think unfortunately even till this day is is pretty hit or miss in the public school system. It's a it's a rough time. I taught middle school, but in a um, a private school, mm-hmm. and it's it had its challenges even in like a, you know, a smaller environment. Um, but yeah, middle school in Jacksonville was kind of a rough time, but I ended up going to private school for the last three years. And that's where I, I met Jason huh. at, at the the private school where he was already at. And um, it was a big shock to my system, uh, to this new school because at one hand, on one hand, it was so, to me, it felt like a utopia, you know, it just felt like, I mean, it, the campus was beautiful. The teachers were great. The kids were all motivated and were hard workers. And just to give you an example, in ninth grade, I went to this larger high school where my mom taught. And I would sneak away at lunchtime when everyone went to the cafeteria. And I hated the cafeteria. It was loud. People would pick fights with you. The food wasn't good. You know, you'd have to like, it just was a lot of drama, you know, girls eating ice because they didn't want to eat real food, you know, stuff. And I would, uh, I'd sneak away to the library to just have some quiet, eat my, my lunch in the bathroom because you weren't allowed to have any food in the library. So I'd eat my peanut p- 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 butter and jelly in the bathroom stall real quick, like just like total weirdo, right? And um, rule breaker. Right, I guess. I mean, I don't know who else was doing. It. And I'd go in the library and I'd be the only one in there. And the librarian would be like, oh, there's here's Mrs. Dent's daughter, <laughs> you know? And I'd do my homework or I'd read a book or prepare for my next class because I'd build it in that like, oh, I'd have this time. And uh, so my first week at, at this, the school where we, Jason and I met at, I was, you know, I'm going to do my thing, right? That's, that's what I do. I go to the library during lunchtime. So I ate my lunch quickly, went to the library. And plus I didn't know anybody at this new school. So I'm just going to go, you know, focus on my work. And I went in there, I couldn't find a seat. (laughs) It was full. (laughs) I was shocked. I was like, what? Holy shit. I'm going to have to work really hard, here," (laughs) you know?
1: It sounds like you really found your tribe at the new school.
2: I did in some ways. It did take a little, it, it wasn't that easy. Sure. You know how that is. Sure. It was a little hard to break in.
1: But at least they had the same general mindset that you did as yes. opposed to the schools that you came from.
2: It did feel like, you know, raising the bar. The first part of that school, I would come home and say, I felt like it was take medicine. I knew it was good for me, but it it was hard. Like I, it was, you know, socially hard. Um, but I knew, I knew it was worthwhile sort of thing. And But eventually I met people, you know, Jason was one of them. He was one of the first people I met. You know, I met other people who are still my best friends. And then eventually it was like a slow roll. I just collect another good friend every semester, but nothing crazy, you know, nothing like it was back in public school where I knew everyone, grew up with everyone. Everyone knew who my mom was, you know, being in at the school and everything. It was, I mean, I was like president of my freshman class and, you know, stuff like that. But see my senior year. Everything changed because I came. I finally agreed to go out for the cross country team.
1: Uh, I was wondering if you pursued athletics when you went to the new school.
2: I did. I did play tennis, and then
1: is there anybody in Jacksonville area that hasn't played tennis?
2: (laughs) I know, right? It it
1: seems like everyone I've talked to has played tennis.
2: Yeah, this is a tennis state. (laughs) Yeah, so I did tennis, and then I played soccer. But soccer wasn't really my game. Like, wasn't that skilled in it? But I was. I was a good runner mm-hmm. and finally the cross country coach, she just hounded me. She would always be like, just come out, just, just come run with us. And I ran a few relays and track my junior year. And then something changed where I, I said, okay, I'm going to try this cross country thing. And I went out in the summer before, and that's where I really found my people. That was like going back to the run around the fence
1: uh, okay. kind of thing,
2: you know, yeah. and, and, and like but in a good way, we were all buddies, you know, Pushing a, con- each other. a
1: continuation, but, a, but an expansion.
2: Well, I think something like running or even rucking is like, so it's something so pure about it, right? There's no politics involved. It doesn't matter if the coach likes you or not, if you're going to sit the bench or not, you know, you just get out there, you toe the line and then you go and the first person that crosses it wins. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's beautiful in its simplicity.
1: You're an individual, but you're still part of a team.
2: Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I loved about it. It was a real team environment, you know, more so than any other team I had been on. It's something that I, I could, took on to college kind of naively. I got into a, the college I wanted to go to, to, to Georgetown to Georgetown oh, University, okay. and I was very Great. excited. But I, I, I was like, you know, I'm going to think I'm going to, I think I'm just going to continue running. Which my coach was supportive, and she reached out to the head coach there, and he sent me the training program for the summer and said, sure, have her come on. Well, here I am thinking, oh, wow, this is great. When really, I didn't know at the time that Georgetown was a division one, top three ranked school and running and mm-hmm. that they were recruiting only the top athletes in the nation. And I was like, good, but not great. You know, I was I had decent times, but I was, I just showed up like, yeah, this is cool. I'm going to do this. And then being like, oh, you were footlocker Foot Locker national champion. Oh, man. I've, What have I got myself into? But I, it was so great. But, I got. But yeah. she's
0: still one of your best friends. Of she's this still day. one of my best KG, friends. We love yes. you. Yes,
2: <laughs> she is, and she she remembers that day I met the coach. And and it's funny, like I only basically got to walk onto that team because of something called Title Nine. Oh, <laughs> got it. Thank you. You know, I mean, they needed um, more females to match the male sports, and it was one of the best mistakes I've ever made, you know, not knowing what I was getting into. And there's something about being like fearfully ignorant about things. You just, I didn't, I wasn't deterred because I just didn't even stop to think about, well, what are they ranked and what are their times? And, you know, if I had gone to the school that I probably would have gone to, if I hadn't gotten to Georgetown University of Florida, I wouldn't have been able to even walk onto their team because they're a much larger school, you know, they're title nine, thing is, was the different dynamic. And they would have probably said, well, you have to have these times to even show up, like set a foot on on the track. And Mm I may not have, I don't know what those times were, but it's possible I wouldn't have made the cut.
1: There's there's a bit of luck in everything we do. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Sounds like you, you walked into a great spot.
2: I did. I mean, I, it wasn't like it was a freebie or anything.
1: No, (laughs) you worked for it. I'm sure.
2: (laughs) I'd never run in snow before. I've never run up like a steep incline before coming from Florida. At that time, the races in high school in Florida were only two miles. And it's a big adjustment to go to 5K or even 6K. Mm -hmm. So my first cross country season was abysmal. I'm talking, I was last in an entire race in West Virginia. But it was
1: a learning experience.
2: Oh, yes. It was. Ah. (laughs) I learned that I hated running in hills in West Virginia. (laughs) I mean, I've never been dead last in anything, and I was dead last. They had to, like, wait for me to finish. But I was, I was like, adjusting to a lot, you know, first semester away from home, running, going from running maybe 30 miles a week to 90. <laughs> and yeah, it was just, there was a lot. I remember right before that race, I, I got robbed in my room. At, really? Yes, at Georgetown.
1: At Georgetown University. Yes.
2: Yeah, so I lived in Harbin Hall. Same one as Bill Clinton. That's what everyone told me when I got there. I was on the sixth floor. Um, My roommate, I had met her at, you know, before we started school, just at some sort of visiting day for, you know, kids who got into Georgetown. And we just hit it off and decided we were going to room together, you know, kind of take the mystery out of it. So I was like one of the few track and field folks that weren't living in a track and field um, dorm with another athlete, which I actually ended up loving because I got to expand my my friend group. Um, but so she was, she wasn't there. It was the middle of the day. I was getting ready to go to my last class before getting on a bus to go to West Virginia. And, uh, I'm beat, right. I'm like, I'm barely surviving at this point because of like all the running I'm doing. I mean, it's two a days. It's, it's just serious. And you know, the Hills really got to me. Um, so I'm lying on my bed and I didn't lock the door. Cause it was like, you know, middle of the day, we're all like in this, you know, dorm situation and the door opens and I think it's my roommate and I, 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 and then she's not, you know, it doesn't sound like her. So I open my eyes and it's this guy and he's dressed up like a FedEx delivery guy. And I jump up and I'm like almost blocking the door because my bed's near the door. And I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? he was like uh delivering package <laughs> but he grabs my wallet i had this like man wallet at the time you know mm-hmm. this didn't have like a lot of like different types of things that whatever i had like an old wallet of my dad's it was like stuffed full of like it was like really thick like a burger size you know <laughs> he just grabs it off my desk and runs out and i'm um, thankfully like i wasn't blocking the door enough that would prevent him but he just right. ran And I was like so out of it that I just started chasing him. Like I chased him down the stairs. Like, you know, we're just doing this thing. We're like running down the stairs and run past the guard who was like obviously just like, you know, joking around. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, he stole my wallet. I'm telling everyone I see, like, I'm chasing after this guy. He stole my wallet. So I'm chasing him through campus from Harbin all the way down, down steps and everything. And this guy's just taking off and he just throwing stuff out of my wallet, grabbing the money, you know, trying to throw it out. So I ended up getting everything but the money. It wasn't that much money, but I was just like, I remember stopping at one point. I, he ran off. I couldn't catch him. He was really fast. And I was like, just beat. And I'm standing like with no shoes on in the middle of like campus. And I'm just like, God, motherfucker. Still want money.
1: I'm getting this middle picture of you. I
2: know, right? <laughs> I get on the bus and I'm just pissed. And then I have this terrible race and then and I come home and I'm like, I'm like, I'm a broke college student at this. You know, I had a work study job. I babysit on the side. I did anything I could for money. I did all these like research projects, mm-hmm. you know, where I'd go and like take a nap in the MRI. And and get seventy five bucks for it. I mean, I did all this weird stuff. You can ask my friends, my teammates. They're like, Emily never slept in college. She just was always doing some weird thing that none of us even knew existed.
1: I'm sure I believe that. <laughs> yeah. And and in all fairness about your race in West Virginia, West Virginia is a gorgeous state, but it does have some serious mountains. Right. And it sucks yeah. to run up and down them.
2: It did suck. So that race never ended.
1: So what were you studying in college? What was your majors?
2: Um, I was a French major. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like my mom was a French teacher. So I was obviously very influenced by that growing up. My house was filled with everything you can imagine from France.
1: I can can imagine. (laughs) I I think I saw a blog that you had done about your mom uh, and her visits to France and 200 Eiffel Towers in the house oh, yeah. or something. And, it's like, and counting. Yeah, <laughs> and counting. So what did you intend to do with that degree?
2: Initially, I wanted to be in MSF, so Medicine Sans Frontières and Doctors Without Borders. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be living in Africa on the front lines, helping people uh, as a doctor. Oh, that's cool. I know. I thought that would be cool.
1: So did you do that? No. Okay.
2: But I ended up... Doing something similar. Well, tell us. <laughs> yeah. Just to back up a little bit, I did the, the pre-med route, which was really hard. <laughs> sure. And um, especially to go from like, like I basically was a language major and a pre-med, which meant I didn't do anything in English ever. <laughs> it was like all numbers and then papers in French and Spanish. because I, I ended up doing a minor in Spanish. Okay. I remember I took like a Shakespeare class as a break. <laughs> I was like, oh, just
1: Shakespeare was a break. <laughs> I mean, just take a okay. Shakespeare
2: class. It'll be fun. It was a great class. That was right when Harry Potter was coming out. And I didn't read Harry Potter till much later, but my teacher was like crazy about Harry Potter. He was like so rich, just like Shakespeare. So so I took a lot of um, pre-med courses and struggled. through. I mean, they were hard. I took organic chemistry one summer, um, chemistry one and two, all condensed into one summer. Oh. I don't I don't you don't really appreciate that unless you've taken Orgo. Yeah. It was it was kind of it was a fun time in retrospect. I met one of my best friends in that class. She was visiting from Princeton. Um we were both kind of doing the same thing. We decided to do the pre-med track like a year later, mm-hmm. you know, so starting our sophomore years. So that you have to play catch up because it's pretty it's pretty rigorous. You know, it's a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics, a lot of biology. You have to do you certain math requirements as well. Um so did all that, took the MCAT, my senior year, the drunkest I ever got in my life was after that MCAT It's an eight hour <laughs> test. <laughs> I didn't know what a beer bong was. And I found out that night and I got so drunk. I don't even remember what, I don't remember much, but everyone gets drunk out of MCAT. So, so Sounds like MCAT. a great
1: MCAT experience.
2: <laughs> it's still like hard. It's still like this long ass test it's still terrible I hear. So I did that. And then I was like, I didn't want to go to med school right away. I'll defer a year. So this, um, track friend of mine, Richard Zielinski, he, um, he's kind of a kooky guy too. He was always doing weird stuff. He and I started this club at the end, like the last semester of our senior year called, uh, I eat investment bankers for breakfast club. (laughs) That was the name of it. Okay. (laughs) And we invited- this.
1: There's, there's got to be a story behind that too.
2: I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like. We didn't want to go into the rat race,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Which we were, this was 2001 in, the, in May. Well, like this was like April, May, 2001. Mm-hmm. Like, oh gosh, we're about to step off into the real world. We don't really want to go. Because Georgetown sends a lot of people to New York afterwards sure. to go be investment bankers. Right. And we were like kind of- up going against that a little bit. Like we don't, we don't want to do that right now. We want to see the world and we're not going to worry about our student loans just yet sort of thing, you know? (laughs) And uh, so we actually had like 15 people show up to the meetings that we held in the library.
1: That's pretty good.
2: (laughs) So we had all these people show up to these meetings and then we basically pulled together resources because this is before Google. Mm -hmm. I mean, was really a thing. And so to get information, you had to really do a lot of legwork, right? You had to actually make phone calls and fax things and, you know, yeah. email. You had to was, look
1: stuff up. Yeah,
2: email was just kind of getting going. Yeah. Not everybody was really up to speed on it. So we basically pulled together resources to find out. And we came up with like, you know, basically the spreadsheet of, well, here are all the organizations that you can do post-college that are service related. These are the areas where they do them. This is if they give you a stipend or not, this is, you know, if it, they help you, you know, do the paperwork to defer your loans. And this is the, how many years you need to do. This is if they offer training, basically just all the information. Right. Right. And um, probably only a handful of us ended up doing something like that, but he and I both did. The, we ended up doing the same mm-hmm. program. We ended up going to separate years of it. Cause I deferred a year um, after, cause my dad died suddenly, like right after I graduated. So I ended up going after, uh, later and we, it was to a program to Ecuador. It was, it was life-changing. It was really great.
1: So you said you minored in Spanish. Yeah. So you had some background going to Ecuador with that, mm-hmm. some help language-wise at least. Yeah. So how did you actually pick Ecuador and how did you end up there?
2: It, it was kind of random. It was basically this program. It was through Catholic Relief Services offered a small stipend. They offered some training. It was a one-year commitment and there was relative freedom of um, choosing what you wanted to do down there. So, you know, sometimes like you go to these programs and there's a lot of strings attached. Sure. Right? So this was part of the research of it. It was kind of figuring out like, what's the best fit? And it was a really great fit for me. I ended up not applying to Peace Corps because I thought the two, sometimes three-year commitment just felt so long. Right. And it felt like a really long time to not pay student loans and be in the workforce or something like that. But it's not that I regret where I went at all, but I do in retrospect say, think that that two years, like from the hindsight of being, you know, my being my forties now, it's not that big of a deal. Right. So I always tell kids that are graduating college or, you know, in that time in their life, like you need, this is the time that you really need to figure out this is, you need to go have an adventure, mm-hmm. you know, I don't mean just an adventure where you have your parents' credit card and right. you're just wandering aimlessly. I mean, to go do something real.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, this was what year that you went down there?
2: I was down there from 2002 to 2003.
1: So 2001 had happened, mm-hmm. uh, all of that that was going on in the world. Yeah. You're down there. How, how did that strike you?
2: It was weird. But like I told you, I, I deferred a year. Right. So in two thousand and one, I was in Washington D.C. and mm-hmm. the Watergate building when September eleventh happened. So it was kind of in the epicenter of it all. That was a weird time. It didn't. It wasn't clear to me like what the paths were. You know, it, it's interesting to hear sometimes Jason say like he knew when that happened that he he wanted to serve. Mm-hmm. You know, and he just needed to figure out how and where. where? Right. Yeah. And for me, it was a little more circuitous. You know, I was a little unmoored from having lost my father and then deferring that year. And I, you know, it's like I set out to do, to go to Ecuador and that got, that was a dream deferred. And then it took me like the better part of a year to get back on track to that original dream. So I did that. And It ended up being a really good choice, even if, only because I had already put the work in. Sure. And and I had had, it was like a known quantity. And it was an interesting experience because it was living in like an intentional Christian community, which I was, I was the most apprehensive about (laughs) because I didn't know my joining a cult or,
1: you know, what is. Not that they were by any means, (laughs) but, but I mean, you're always looking.
2: Right. Exactly. When I first (laughs) got there, you know, we're getting to know each other. We'd spent Several weeks in Scranton, Pennsylvania, getting trained at at a Jesuit, at the John Carroll University there, Jesuit, Jesuit University.
1: Sure.
2: And uh, that was weird. (laughs) The training was, was interesting, but nothing like I had ever done before. There were several like silent retreats we had to go on, did not go well (laughs) for me. I was like, I don't want to be quiet. What's going on here? You know? (laughs) And uh, I went, I remember I went to a polka festival, (laughs) I never well, been
1: Polka Festival. Yeah,
2: yeah, hmm. like you know, in, in like yeah. in Scranton area. Sure. So sure, but finally got to Ecuador.
1: I'm thinking John Candy. here. I know. That, yeah, yes, okay. yes, yeah. exactly.
2: That's what it kind of it was like that. So <laughs> we right. we've got to Ecuador and we're getting to know each other. It Was myself and um, seven other Americans. You know, most of us right out of college, right. and then there was one director who had who had spent some time there already. But we kind of rotated. Um, jobs in this house that we had. I mean, we cooked for everyone one night's a week. We had like, you know, chores, you know, typical roommate kind of stuff. Sure. But then there was also the whole sort of religious element, the prayer. And so we all had to lead prayer, at, you know, one night a week. And um, this really wonderful person who I grew to love, but I didn't know about, didn't know what to think about it right out of the gate. Her turn to lead prayer, she wanted to wash everyone's feet. And I was like, you're not touching my feet. <laughs> I'm not okay with this. And it was like, at the beginning, people kind of wanted to kick me out. Because I was Mm. like, I was a little like, I'm not so sure about this. And the first night I woke up after we were in country, I went for, I got up and went for a run. And that caused a really big stink in the house. Mm. They didn't think it was safe for me to go out. And they didn't like that I didn't ask permission. And I basically stood up against all of them and said, I didn't come here to be in a minimal security prison. (laughs) So, We eventually worked at work things out. I eventually let Jill wash my feet. By the end of the year, things people can change. And the funny thing is, like after (laughs) that, you know, initial like, oh my god, you know, what is Emily doing, going outside by herself in Ecuador? Eventually, I got every female, which we were all females except for one guy. I got every female running to the bridge by the end and. It just took people different, you know, people need to go their own pace, right? Right. To get comfortable to an area. But my way of getting comfortable was to get out and look around. And it felt to me that like early morning, I wasn't being a total like reckless person. I was going out and kind of making concentric circles.
1: Being thoughtful about how you did things as opposed to just doing something for shock I was one of the few
2: people that wasn't robbed while we were in that in country. And I think I, my theory, and you can say what, you you know, you can think what you want, but my theory is that it's because I really got to know a lot of people there. Not only people trusted me and I trusted them, but I also from those trusting relationships was able to apply the knowledge they gave Mm -hmm. me to more dangerous situations. Like we were outside of Guayaquil Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and Duran and, um, you know, we had a sister organization in Quito and we took a trip up there and these Ecuadorian friends of mine had told me that when someone you hear someone go like do whistle signaling right and you hear it again, it's it's like basically two people coming in to rob you or attack, mm-hmm. right? And I was in this very busy square in this, you know, center plaza of Quito and I saw this going on and and like looked and saw them kind of pinpointing towards me. I was not the only you know, gringa there, but one of the few. And they would wait until you kind of wandered off on a side street away from the main area. And that's when they would get you. And I I saw this kind of happening and I wouldn't have known that except that I had befriended some locals and they had kind of told me like, hey, if you ever see this, watch out sort of thing.
1: It always pays to get to know the locals. It does. And and oftentimes when you do something out of the norm, it will stop people from doing things because they don't know what you're doing. Right it throws them off you're not being the normal tourist just wandering around mm-hmm. unaware of what's happening around you. Yeah. You you have a purpose you're out whatever you're doing. You're running, you're moving, you're you're yeah. going through an area and it'll stop them in many cases from from approaching you and doing something bad. Right. Because they don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. It works.
2: It does. The in that case I ended up going to a police officer. Thankfully not a corrupt one. <laughs> and uh paid him 5 bucks to walk me down to the taxi stand so i could get in a taxi and go back to where where we we were staying in quito you know but really? i hear what you're saying when you're yeah. when you're running when you're on a mission and you're not just getting lost or going down an alley yeah cuz yeah was it a risk for me to go out that first morning when i was in ecuador yeah but it wasn't like was it the riskiest thing that it you know ever happened sure. you know no because yeah. it was the time of day felt okay. And I just, I feel like we could be locked up in this compound for a long time without knowing what's out mm-hmm. there. And that doesn't seem very safe either. Sure. You want to know the hardest, one of the hardest jobs in the world is yeah. um, being a being a volunteer. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, 24 seven, it just never stopped. Yeah. And it was, it, it really was a complicated sort of problem to tackle. And that's when, that's where the kind of that intentional community that we had, really started to pay off because we did ask ourselves like the tough questions we worked through a lot of things and we didn't have answers for everything, but this idea of like, how do you help people? You know, I mean, are you really helping them by giving people money? You know, are you really helping people by giving, you know, by food? I mean, these existential human problems and you have to just live with it. You can't just drive through you. We actually lived in it. Our, our accommodations were basic, no hot water, you know, not really good running water, you know, sparse li- living conditions by any standard here. But it was far and away better than our locals, the, sure. the, the, the neighbors that we had. And um, we were known to be, you know, this, this group that was there to, to work in the community and help. And you don't realize this at the time, but you, you make a lot of mistakes in, until you figure things out. And you also have to, you know, set up the next group mm-hmm. that's coming for success.
1: And, and regardless, even if you make mistakes, and it can be in a volunteer job or you mm-hmm. can be in the military or wherever, if the locals feel that you're really trying, yeah. they, they understand and they they have the awareness that you're really trying to do something as opposed to just getting by. Right. And that makes a great difference. And and even when you make mistakes, those mistakes are forgiven because the people understand that you're there for the right reason and that you're trying to do the right thing.
2: Right. But you bring up a great point because it, they do, they, a lot of them do understand, but some of them are, or, you know, you meet others that are jaded. Oh, they absolutely. know you're leaving. They sure. know that even a year seems like a long time. It's still temporary. You know, you have to get over this, like, am I like Marie Antoinette and her Hamlet, you know, playing the part of being poor, right. even though I know I'm not, Right. I've got safety nets that people don't have. I mean, these are, these are hard questions to ask yourself, this is really when you start to say, it really is luck when and where you're born and what is our responsibility? What, what, where, where do we draw the line? And I I mean, I, we grappled with this during, but I grappled with it more after. I mean, I got a lot out of that year in terms of healing and getting in touch. I mean, I, I, actually chose to become like a Catholic there. You know, I went to catechism classes with the priest and cause I had never been baptized Catholic. I went to Georgetown and obviously grew close to the faith there, but then it wasn't until Ecuador that I took that step. Interesting. Yeah. As an adult, which I think is, it's not usual for a Catholic, you know, to do that as an adult, like in other religions, <laughs> but it's, um, but it was powerful and it really, it shouldn't matter when. I don't I, think it
1: does matter when.
2: I like the having the choice. Yeah. So it was really, I got a lot out of it. and But then I had to come home culturally, reacclimate.
1: What I happened just, when you did that? When you came back to the, the States after that year down there? I got one
0: quick story. So we, <laughs> oh, we, out, okay. we, we both ended up just being back in the States at the same time. People always accuse me of, oh, you were just chasing Emily around. <laughs> I'm, I'm not above that. <laughs> right, We did actually happen to just be back at the same time. And we were at a grocery store, not too far from where we went to high school together. And all of a sudden we had a, you know, just a normal package of green grapes. You would go to any grocery store and find. And we went through the checkout. I <laughs> can see it right now so vividly. And we're there and Emily's always just spunked. She's always got energy. It's just always throughout her whole life, her daily life, everything. And and we go through the checkout- and I watched the lady scan the green grapes, you know they weigh them, and then right. they punch the coat in, and then it sure. pops up how much it costs on the right. thing and It was something like nine bucks, eleven bucks, something like that, and I watched her eyes turn into saucers, <laughs> right, and she looked and she's like, "Wait, what these these grapes are nine bucks for this little thing." She's like, "No, no, 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 right like this is." Right. And she wagged her little yeah. finger. And, and bottom line is, we didn't buy the grapes. Right? <laughs> I, was, I was happy to buy the grapes for her, anything yeah, for Emily. Sure. But we didn't buy the grapes.
2: Yeah. There was a lot more than came with that too. I mean, reentry was hard. And, um, you know, I've since lived abroad and come back, and it's never been as hard as that was. I think it was just such an intense experience living down there. It was formative. I was actually thinking about this the other day when I was talking to like a young, soon-to-be college graduate and she was going through a little bit of a, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if what I've studied is worth it, you know, just having this moment of doubt. And I said, You need to go do something like this. I learned so much and it 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 really made me appreciate like service in a different way.
1: All of our lives are a formative process, but there are some periods that are, that are more incremental than others. Mm -hmm. It's a process that unfortunately very few go through. Yeah. Really.
2: Or, or they used to go through it more often or now it's just like it's shielded. Or they
1: they insulate themselves Mm -hmm.
2: from it. Yeah. I think that's a better way to say you're insulated from it.
1: Because oftentimes Americans insulate themselves from the, the culture that they're in when they're in a foreign country. And that's unfortunate because you lose so much by doing that rather than learning about the people and learning about the culture and mm-hmm. learning about the country, the history. The, these countries have terrific histories. They've got histories going back farther, way farther than we. But people just ignore that. And they become, unfortunately, the ugly American in many cases.
2: I became a better American from living in Ecuador for a year.
1: And that's terrific. And yeah. I would hope that more people do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope a lot of people listening to this choose to, to go along those lines because right. there's a lot to do out there.
2: Right. And I I used to think, you know, younger, you had to live, go out, you know, outside of the borders to have this kind of experience, but I don't think so. I think you just have to go outside from wherever you're insulated. What is your norm and exactly. that you can do that in your same city sure if you
1: really want to your city your state your country you, you don't have to go into a foreign country to do that
2: no yeah. it probably happen might happen a little faster just because you're, you're it's so intense yeah. you know you start yeah. dreaming in a different language and having that sort of you know all the cultural things, you're wondering if everything you're doing is wrong. I mean you just question it soon, you know, faster, but you don't have to, especially in America where we are, have so much diversity and you can go and find these pockets of these communities.
1: And we have such expensive green grapes. So 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 what happened after the green grapes? <laughs>
2: I was in this weird place, right, uh-huh. where I, um, I was like, no job is beneath me, and I'm just going to figure it out. I, I started, like, substitute teaching. I started, I came back and started coaching some cross country at my, at the high school we went to, um, and then, you know, I went to Cuba for, Ooh. like, a month. Cuba? Yeah. It was <laughs> All awesome. All
1: right. How did you get, how did you get to uh, Cuba? Yeah, that's a good story, too, but. <laughs>
2: Yeah. No, I, I basically found a, found a friend that was shooting a movie down there and tagged along. And once I realized that I didn't really need to do much there, I kind of went on my own and traveled to the Island. And it was, it was, it was a cool experience. I
1: bet it was. What year was that? That was
2: 2003. And I've since been back and it was in a different capacity, you know, shorter trip, a little more, you know, they, they were controlling it more, but at the time, you know, they were, there were Canadian and European visitors, but there weren't that many Americans. And that, that, you know, what really boggled my mind is I just had, I had just left Ecuador. You know, I'm still right. like trying to piece that whole thing together. Right. Still processing on that, you know, li- seeing really a lot of poverty, more poverty than I would ever seen really and get to Cuba and the poverty wasn't that bad. You know, it was everyone had nice teeth and they seemed healthy and the kids had nice uniforms and they all went to school and they all had access to health care. And I was like, what, you know, it, it really threw me for a loop at first. I'm like, what is going on? Like, what are they doing that's better than Ecuador? Right. You know, and it's like, you know, you don't see advertisements anywhere. There's nothing to buy, you know, right. it's, it's, it's a very strange experience. And you know, after the, towards the end of my, month long journey. I was just had talked to a lot of people. You you stay in people's homes. It's called sensados and they have double rations of food if they have, you know, people staying at the place, but it's like a state sponsored Airbnb at the time. And I learned a lot just from observing and talking to folks. And at the end of it, my conclusion was like, it's better than the poorest of the poor in Ecuador, but people don't have the choice to choose. And that I think if you I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what people in Ecuador would have done. Like, would you rather be able to speak your mind? Are you are you really free when you're that oppressed from poverty? I don't know. I'm sorry. It, it's it's complicated, but at the end of the day I came back and I was like, no thanks, communism. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's sure. not that it's not that great, you know. Yeah. I mean it it really was better than the like I said, the lowest wrongs that they had in Ecuador at the time where I lived, but it, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't a fan.
1: They had some great old cars down there.
2: They did. Yeah. There's
1: some terrific old cars. Yeah. But again, you're right. They don't have the choice.
2: I mean, I met this gorgeous, this gorgeous optometrist, this female doctor, Mm -hmm. and she told me that she basically would earn like a dollar a week as a, as a doctor. But she could earn a lot more as a secretary for like, you know, a Canadian company. It was just kind of mind-boggling to to see. I think you really felt it with the the younger folks there. They just, they were just wanted, they wanted more opportunity, more choice. You know, this wasn't their revolution sort of thing. It kind
1: of jades your sense of purpose. Wow. So when you came back, what did you do?
2: (laughs) I, like I said, I started subbing. A friend got me a job as a lab tech at the school, and I, I was just cleaning beakers.
1: I've got a I'm have a Georgetown you graduate, <laughs>
2: you know, volunteer, basically came down, and here I am just cleaning these beakers for these kids' laboratory. And the breaking point for me, and I, it's like I was kind of in this, like, I'm nothing's beneath me. Like, I'll, I'll do this job, you know, and I, I just need to earn money and work. Work, I've always liked to work and it just, I just took what came, you know, I was doing like 10 odd, odd and end jobs. But the breaking point for me when I finally was like, no, no, this is a waste. (laughs) This is a waste of my time was when the the head of this lab at the school came to me and said that I needed to go clean out the rat poop in these rat cages for this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to cuss this spoiled rats um, science project. And I was like, if it's his science project, he should clean out the rat poop. And she was like, oh, well, no, this is, I'm I'm like, this isn't in my job description. And she was like, well, I'm putting it in there. And I was like, well, I quit. <laughs> I did that. I was like, done. Good on you. I just thought that was the most, and it wasn't that I wouldn't clean the poop. It was that some kid, it was beneath that kid to do their yeah. own work. And that's like, I was just so annoyed and disgusted I mean, I'm also like 20 something, you know, I have a lot of idealism, you know, but I was like, you piece of shit, you know, (laughs) you know, I was so mad. (laughs) So after that, I was like, I can do more with my life. And so I had actually met up with Jason at that time. And I was like, all right, so you tricked everyone and joined the army on the sly, you know, Uh. (laughs) Um, good on you. I didn't really quite know what that meant at the time. Mm -hmm. And we weren't really together, but you know, he was like, you know, you should do, you know, you should apply to the agency. And I'm like, I don't know, I've never thought about that before. Why would it? Why would I do that? And he was like, Well, I know a little, a little bit about the process. Let me, let me tell you more about it. And he started telling me more, and I'm like, I still wasn't sold. Mm-hmm. Was well, you remember right? I wasn't sold on that. I was like, maybe they'll like me as a language teacher, right?
0: Yeah, I didn't get involved in the into. The- what you would be doing there, but I remember we went to the Players Cafe, yeah,
2: for breakfast. In, in place. For
0: breakfast, yeah, and it's a Greasy Spoon, and I mean I don't know. We sat there for a while and just chatted, yeah, and it was a long breakfast. <laughs> but I had just gone through that whole process and decided kind of not to go really through with it because I needed to go join the military, and yet I, you know, I just I, we weren't in touch all the time because you you couldn't be back then, no, right? There was no texting emily in ecuador or any of this it didn't exist no you no, know, none of that letter writing letter writing i i didn't have your ad, did i write you in ecuador you said
2: yeah yeah you I did. did once yeah you did you're right yeah. i i called you once
0: <laughs> One, once yeah. in a year
2: once in a year
0: mm. but, but so at that point i was really yeah. <laughs> but
2: we weren't really together yeah. so it's we so were we it. were friends
0: we're but friends. but you're you know we remember did. you've got the little credit card size calling card and you oh, got yeah. all the dial <laughs> yes. numbers and you got well, go to get lots from, of those. Yeah. Right. I gotcha. And so yeah. you're doing, you're playing that game and that was a way to save a lot of money. Yeah. And so, you know, you came back and we were back at the same time and we went, you know, it's like, Hey, what are you doing? And it, it was post nine eleven was just weird. Yeah. It was that's very, you went for grapes. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that's <laughs> one story of, of many just sure. of what those days were yeah. like. And it was just sort of, you know, it's just post 911 is weird. Yeah. So, went and I just, I had been through that process living up in DC and we were both kind of there at the same time ish. And well, I, I went through this whole process at the agency and you're, you would be perfect for this. You should definitely <laughs> go do this. You, you like to travel, you speak languages and you right. know, your country needs you. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was, it was really just that simple.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He, he told me that and he planted a seed, even though I I wasn't, I wasn't sold on it. Like I was like, no, I'm from, I'm a teacher, you know, I'm going to, I mean, at that point I think I'd gotten an offer to teach full time Mm -hmm. at the the middle school of the school that he and I went to. So I was kind of like, well, maybe I was, I was, I was intrigued. So, you know, I, I ended up applying for a language teacher position and I, and I applied to a few other places up in DC. Cause I thought, you know, I really like DC. I, and my friend, a lot of my friends were still there too. So I was just like, what, what do you, I mean, those, when you're in their your twenties, you're like, what, what am I going to do next? The world's your, you know, your oyster. You just, you're kind of just saying, well, go where the wind goes kind of thing. So I, I put some applications out there and then I just, and then I remember getting, getting a call. Like, and it was like, cause he left on my mom. I was living in my mom's house. I remember there was this message on her machine. She was like, you've got some weird message and you need to check it. And I always hated listening to those messages. You know, you have to go through all of them. And so I, I listened to it and I didn't understand it. And I listened to it several times and it didn't make any sense. Yeah. I finally was like, could it, could it be what that place I applied to as a language? I was like, Oh, maybe they want me as a language teacher. So call back and do these phone interviews and there's this whole long process and there's stories for another day on Mm -hmm. all i mean there's a it was a lot that went on it went went on for about two and a half years so but essentially what it was was the start of the background check and the interview process to to join the agency and this is post 9-11 so there was a lot of hiring going on i found out like at some point in the process that they didn't want me as a language teacher. And they, it's kind of like with Jason, it was like, I think you're going in for one thing. And then they say, no, no, no. We've
1: <laughs> we, got other ideas. We,
2: this is not how it works. Right. And they basically said, this is not how it works. We hire native speakers for our language teachers. And I was like, Oh darn, you know, <laughs> there it goes, you know? And then they told me, no, we, we have, you know, another position for you like an operations officer. And I was, you know, had to go online, <laughs> to look up what that was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, that looks kind of interesting.
0: They tell you to read Ron Kessler's Inside the CIA, Inside the CIA. and read The Economist.
2: Yes, I did read. I did read both. In fact, on <laughs> um, one time I was traveling up to D.C. for some interviews and I had that book in my um, carry on, which at that time TSA was like going crazy and just dumping stuff out. Yeah. And the guy like saw it and he goes, I didn't want to know what you're doing.
0: <laughs> he <TSA guy. laughs>
2: was like just move on I don't want to even know <laughs> I was like I'm gonna carry that book around me forever, forever. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so that was a long process and the whole time I was really skeptical I guess all I knew was like was the movies and I was like me and my new Catholic self was very uh, worried about being, being responsible for civilian casualties. Right. <laughs> so I was like, in all my interviews, the first thing I'd ask was like, how does this work? Like, how would I get information that would lead to an airstrike? <laughs> and they were like, oh, you know, I mean, I I, I, I built it in a little better. Wasn't sure. It was a little smoother than that. But I was little, I was really, that was my main concern. That was one of my main concerns. I was like, I'm not going off this like, Do good in the world and then turning into
1: like killer. (laughs) What you didn't realize was the hook had been set years before. Yeah. That service was a way of life. Right. And then it was multiplied when we (laughs) talked to Jason. So additionally, service to your nation and service to the world. And I'm sure that having known some of the folks that that do the recruiting and things like that, Mm -hmm. they. They were gently playing on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Well, it, so, and they this, they were they set me straight and they were like, listen, yeah. it's not all like that, you know, sort right. of thing. And I was like, okay, I feel better about it. So as I, I went down, I mean, I actually think it's not a bad idea to be skeptical about something, a- you know. It, it made me ask questions and make sure. sure I I really wanted to do it because.
1: And that you knew what you were getting into.
2: Right. For the, for most, the most part. For the most
1: part. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I have to tell you, like, it was. I think it was just the time in terms of being post 9-11 and stuff. And it's like, do you have a pulse? (laughs) Do you uh, no more more than that? It's like, do you have a pulse? Do you speak a language? Can you, you know, are you, are you coming out here trying to be James Bond? And I was, I was almost the opposite. I was like, pump the brakes. I'm not sure about this. And I don't, I don't know if maybe that was like comforting or made me, you know, a good candidate or not. But one of the, the, most remarkable parts of that whole process was this one guy that I met. And it was like, a, I walked away from this meeting being like, I think I'm in, <laughs> you know, because he was like, let me tell you three things. Don't cook the books. Always protect your source. And basically like be there, watch, you know, watch out for the, your other guy or something, watch out for your teammates or something. And I was like, he had just been grounded. He had been in Afghanistan, had a heart attack and they told him like you're you're medically grounded, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he was pissed to be doing what he was doing. So oh, he sure. just like pushing you through, you know. These this is what you need to do. And I was like pretty encouraged by that. I thought that was cool kind of. He didn't brag pretty, about what he was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But that's a pretty interesting process.
2: Yeah. I've got Long. this
1: mental picture of you going through this process with everything else that you've been through yeah. at that point. Right. That uh, and, and your skepticism, because a lot of people at that time that were applying to the agency weren't that skeptical. They they just wanted in. They wanted to be James Bond. They wanted yeah. to be the person that called in the airstrikes. They wanted yeah. to be the person that shot somebody. Uh, not that the agency shoots anybody, but <laughs> but— there was a lot of people that right. wanted in for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them probably made it in, but but more importantly, people like you that were skeptical that that had the greater good in mind, uh, that you wanted to serve your country, but with a modicum of thought and intellect, mm-hmm. at least. So when did, when did they actually tell you, okay, you're in?
2: So they don't tell you. Okay, but I knew. I knew after that interview, I was like, all right, unless something really bad comes up. Because at that point, the background checks had come around the second round. I remember getting a call from a coaching friend of mine. He's like, they're asking really, really personal questions about you, Emily. (laughs) I was like, what'd you say? He's like, all good things. (laughs) And um, so at that point, I was like, all right, this this is kind of shaping up nicely. And at this point, you know, Jason and I are dating, and so I'm kind of, (laughs) <laughs> when I get a chance, I, I, um, let them know how it was going, but I got a, I just got an offer letter, a conditional offer letter. <laughs> right. And it was almost three times what I was making as a teacher. <laughs> so I didn't even think to negotiate like I should have, <laughs> 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 like I found out everyone else did. But one of the best part of, of it all, because I don't know if it was my experience, but I was right on this cusp of eight of the age of being, it's almost like an Junior category, and then like the real deal, and I ended up getting luckily in the in the real deal category, right?
0: As opposed to experience based, I think it was. You had something, you know, you weren't just fresh out of.
2: I think that was it. Although, you know, having been amongst my classmates and colleagues Mm -hmm. afterwards, we we couldn't like there wasn't. It was a little hard to tell. Some people who were older than me. Weren't and and we were we were always like kind of laughing at each other like ah, ah, you got you got put in the baby bin or something you know you get it basically just lengthens your your timeline. Um, well, without
1: getting too specific, talk us through what happened then.
2: You mean in terms of like entry on duty and stuff? Yeah, what happened yeah. to you? Um So I you know accepted the conditional offer. Mm-hmm. You get your your date to start, and I remember so I moved up to DC. Jason, okay. and I got Jason, and I got married. Ooh. And I move up to D.C. and I'm going to the plan is to live at his aunt and uncle's house in the D.C. area, which um, at the time they don't live there anymore. But it was very close to where I was going to be working and um, which I thought was awesome. But, you know, nobody knew anything about it. So it was kind of like funny because they were always like, how can you just pop in? You know, it it was like their children's school was nearby. So I would just like pop in for things. They're like, how do you do this? You know, sort of thing. It, uh, in, in retrospect, they were like, oh, now it makes sense, you know. But um, I remember filling up my VW Passat. I was filling it up at this gas station, like, right before I, I needed to go through the gates of Langley for the first time. And I was nervous, and I'm in my suit, and, you know, it's like a—it's the a beginning of a new era, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm filling up at this gas station, and I remember this woman comes up to me, <laughs> and she's like, oh, are you a new EOD? I one did not know what she meant. I, I was not sure. I just, I didn't put two and two together right. at the time. And second, I was like, shit, like they're already spying on me. Someone, <laughs> someone's after me, you know, And I don't know who it is. And I just was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she just like looked at me and shaked, shook her head. I mean, she knew, right. And it turns out she was, you know, I think I saw her in the hall later, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, Get in, you go through like, you know, your typical sort of like onboarding stuff. And um, it's a process in itself to, to mm-hmm. be there. But you basically spend the first part getting to know the ropes a little bit in general. And then if you're in the like, like I was saying earlier, like the, the time you spend more time at headquarters mm-hmm. um, if, you, right. if you need. So I spent a little bit of time um, like on a desk, but quickly went into the training, the first part of training. And that was really fun. And I got, you know, I got to meet a lot of great people and they, they, they tell you at the beginning of this, like, you'll never forget people in your class. And at the time you're like, what are you talking about? But it's true after you go through it all, like you're there, there's like a really special bond,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, cause you spend more than a year often like going through a, tr- you know, training program with, right. with them. And it's pretty, there's not, you know, you're spending a lot of time together. So the first part of training and then back on a desk it's actually funny. I went back to an area on the desk that was, you know, an area where I'd spent some time already in my life. And it's funny because they're in the process of, um, they asked me a lot of questions about my trip to Cuba.
1: <laughs> I can imagine they did.
2: I had to, I had to have a lot of special meetings because of that. <laughs> but in the end I was like, I think I gave you guys lots of good information, <laughs> you know, cause I had brought my like Guidebook and all the names and all the pictures and all the places where I'd stayed. And the, I just remember the guy sitting across from me, just being like, you know, taking a lot of notes.
0: Busily writing away. Yeah. Yeah. It so, was, what was it like the back and forth between headquarters and can't parry or
2: Oh right. So the, right?
0: Langley is at Langley and then you're you're not you're you're bouncing back and forth yeah. but you're everyone knows that you're going to somewhere else oh, right. I and mean, that that's your job.
2: Yeah. So another cool thing is that at the time, I don't know if it's still like that but probably similar, but at the time they had all these language bonuses. Of course, at the top, you know, was like your Arabic and your, you know, your hard language, right. your Mandarin, Farsi, and then, you know, Russian came next and it, it was ranked in order Um, it had strategic imp- importance, but also, you know, difficulty.
1: Difficulty. Sure.
2: And so, you know, I'm coming in with French and Spanish and I'm feeling a little like a kindergarten teacher or something, you know, and that was kind of like how I was known in my group. I was known as like the teacher, you know, because <laughs> that was my background. But the, the great thing is that I tested out of those languages, you know, mm-hmm. for not a native proficiency on the skill, but, you know, you're working to you're right. working proficient and then, you know, you're the next level too. So I got a bonus and I thought that was awesome. And um, it also was really cool. So you go through, you know, different portions of the training. But when I did go down to the farm at Camp Perry, um, I spent a lot of time. because Jason was doing his own training. We actually graduated from, you know, respective... Trainings within a week of each other. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I, w- I got to go to his, but he wasn't invited to
0: mine. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. And, and because she loved me so much, she actually had to miss a course in rifles. Yeah. So she missed, Ooh, a long she missed the long guns course
1: oh.
0: at, at Camp Perry because she came to my graduation <laughs> as a Green Beret. So yeah. the, the pictures that we have were uh, the first time you wear your Green Beret and all that stuff. And it's me and the love of my life <laughs> right there, right? She could have been shooting long guns, but- I nope. know. No, no. I think I, I would've I think I would have gone for the long I know, guns, right? But, I know. Eh, what the heck?
2: They told me I could do it later and then they cut that course out, so I should have <laughs> taken it while I could, but you only graduated as a Green Beret once, honey. <laughs> he his one of his Jason's favorite days was when he was able to come on to Camp Perry as my spouse. Or spouse day.
1: Oh, spouse day. <laughs> I I wanna hear about this.
2: It's, it's like, you know, set up kind of old school, like, you know, it probably was used to be like, you know, like these kind of all male clubs. And then one day a year, they allow the, the women to come on. Right. <laughs> so it was still a little bit, I don't think they do that anymore, but at the time they still kind of kept these traditions alive. They and don't? I don't think they do.
0: Hmm. Anyway. To, to frame this though, it was on the heels of a trip that we took to Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, okay. Virginia. Right. And we went and it was, this was just, it was just crazy chaotic time. I mean, you think that your norm is normal, but it's not normal. What, what we're doing. I mean, I'm in, I'm becoming green Bray or whatever. She's a becoming case officer for the CIA. Anyway, in our training, we went to Bush gardens. She got a hero dependent necklace, (laughs) right? We showed up. It's like half price. It's great. You don't make a lot of money. It's half price. These, these places, God bless them. I, I hope that's the way it goes. Right. And, I still have that necklace. It's in my desk. Right <laughs> over there. It's not not because it's anything more it's really than just so funny. Such a memory that we had together. And so yes, yeah, so we cool. flip the we flip it and I end up at Camp Perry. And there's I mean, she has really, really experienced people in her class as well. And they were kind of in the military. And those are the ones that I gravitated toward. I mean, some, you know, one of the Delta force commander and, and all those things. And they you had introduced crazy- me
2: and it, it was introduced to me as the guy who took out Uday Hussein. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. I was like, Whoa. Right? and He yeah. became a good friend no. of ours and, and still is, we don't, it's not, you know, he lives somewhere else and it's not like we, you know, barbecue every weekend together, but I would do anything, anything for that man. Sure. Right. And so the point is, is like, once you, once you find yourself in these circles, you love these people. Right. And they're very easy to love and and that's what's so cool about it is you keep pushing and you find yourself in these circles. And so anyway, I remember though being the spouse there and I was actually sitting next to his wife. And uh we were in this kind of sort of an auditorium, a really small one at Camp Perry and it was just for the spouses and then they kicked the they kicked everyone else out, right? And there was a lot of females in your course. So it it, it wasn't, uh, it was more mixed. Yeah. We'll get back to that. Uh, It was maybe almost 50 50. I mean, it was, it was a, there were a lot of females. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of husbands and a lot of wives and all that stuff. I mean, you you couldn't be, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends, that's not a thing, right? right? Like everyone's got those. You're not welcome on base. But, but so I remember asking this question and I was like, well, cause, you know, I mean, I'm, we're still really new at this. And, naive, and trying to figure out our way, like, how do we serve best and how do we actually, so I, it was a lot easier than asking, you know, the people in the army questions because that, that doesn't go well. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I asked one of the guys, I'm like, how is a girl? And what I was thinking of was, you know, my wife, mm-hmm. how is she supposed to operate in these places where women are not even allowed? You know, you're, you're treated like furniture, or, or less, and how is this supposed to happen? And you know, I had certain places in mind, and right. you know, it's war zones mostly in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and it's not, right. it's not. And he's like, "Look, we have a really low rate of bad stuff happening We're the United States we operate out of en- embassies and we train people to be to operate differently where we need to, but the risks are very low, and and we get a lot out of." We get a lot out of, and it's a rewarding career for the women who who do this job. And I, I still think about that. And what I came to realize over time is that women have, no matter what, certain access and placement. I mean, women and men are different. Sure. And if you're operating out of an embassy, there's embassies all over the world, and we're the United States of America. That's a really great business card to have wherever you are. They will treat you differently. And so, you know, it just it was it was turned my perspective on its head a little bit. And it took a long time to actually figure out what that would mean. And that turned out to be her her story.
1: Right. Well, I want to go back to something that Jason brought up. Uh-huh. And that is the the number of women. Now the OSS, even from World War II, when it was first conceived, had women. Mm-hmm. There were women that were operating in France with the Maquis, Virginia, I can't remember her last name.
2: Hall, right. Virginia Hall.
1: Correct. Uh, she was one of the, the, the premier ladies and kept doing it even after, during the Cold War after World War II. Uh, and there there have been several throughout, but he said you had 50% in your class were women?
2: No, to come to think about it, there were a lot of women in, in my class, and I found that to be really awesome. And there were, I mean, it weren't just any women. They were naval fighter pilot women. They were, you know, women that came from all sorts of backgrounds, business, business backgrounds, and traveled a lot. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Like I felt, it, it reminds me of when I sh- you know, showed up for the track team in Georgetown. I was like small fish in a big pond. And I felt the same way, you know, when I first arrived Camp Perry. And I think that's a really, it makes you humble.
1: It made you makes, swim really hard. It
2: makes you work really hard. <laughs> yeah. So sure. I was like, I felt like I was like, oh man, I'm just a teacher. <laughs> I have these namby-pamby languages. I got to work extra hard. And so.
1: But that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, I worked Actually, really ultimately, hard.
1: Ultimately, that's really a good thing.
2: I I don't know if this is true, but I was told I had the best area fam of anybody there. <laughs> but, Bingo. And um, I had instructors tell me that, they had me find restaurants and food that they didn't even know existed and they had lived there for several decades. So, you know, but I, a lot of that was I didn't have a family that I was like going back to every weekend. I mean, I saw moms and dad's making it work. They get their, they punch out their, their cables and they, what they had to do and then they get back and I was just in a different phase of my life where, you know, Jason was oftentimes unreachable, Mm -hmm. you know, he's running around the woods, Camp McCall or something. And, I just spent my weekends looking for great, great sites (laughs) and found a lot of them. And in the meantime, found a lot of great other parts um, for, you know, for operational activity. And Jason occasionally came up there and, you know, we, I make him do this stuff with me. And, you know, it was just really that kind of I'm running and I don't know how far everyone's behind me, you know, and I'm not even going to look kind of thing. And I ended up, I ended up doing well in the training and I really what was more exciting for me was enjoying it.
1: Well, you were able to develop your independent focus. Right. And that I'm sure served you well later on whereas a lot of others don't do that.
2: Right. Yeah, and there's, you know, different phases where you do things as a team and then there's times you do things autonomously and I liked both of those. You know, and some of those modules are built to weed people out, you know, to see what they, you know, they like or not and I got to do this trip for a week and, you know, you basically have a weekend to pound the pavement, do a lot of, you know, foot surveillance routes and picking sites and setting up meeting points. And I just found, found it super thrilling. I, I loved walking around the city like that. And, you know, I walked so much and it was like terrible weather. It was like pouring down rain, kind of not great, you know, temperature. And I walked so much just to get as much area fam as I could. That I had to go to Chinatown and get like a foot massage. <laughs> it was like the first time I ever did that. It was super weird, but I was like, this is awesome. And it, and After it you
1: wouldn't let the girl wash your feet. I know. You went and got a, See a foot how massage. things change?
2: <laughs> I, and but it was weird, but I was open to it and it kept me going through the week. Like there it allowed go. me to like do all, I mean, cause you have to do a lot of walking.
1: Oh, yeah. All your SDRs and everything else. Yeah.
2: So. It was a lot. Sure. So, anyways. Um, I have to tell you just a quick story about graduation day, which Jason couldn't attend, but it was it was a big deal. It was like it was a really cool ceremony on the apron. It's just it's it's very cool experience, and I wish apron. Well, it's where the aprons where the um the the planes land. You know, it was just felt really intimate, and I've actually heard since then they don't do that anymore. But wish I could have taken a picture, but can't. (laughs) Right, and then after that. It was like a reality TV show. They called everyone up and gave you an envelope and that told you where you were going. Uh huh. And it was just.
1: The, the game show envelope. I just. How cool.
2: It was so cool. It was like so exciting. And I, I remember I opened it up and I got this place in Africa and I was like, yes, I'm so excited. And this is when it basically, it was this big surge at the time. And, you know, it's either Iraq or Afghanistan. And at the time I was like, I don't know how I feel about this, but if I have to go, I want to go to Afghanistan. I don't know. We just, with how I was feeling at the time. Right.
0: <laughs> That's how I felt too. I just didn't have any, there was no, no, no choices. Say. But yes. I remember you volunteered. I did. I
2: volunteered because you could put your name in it. And I just was like, uh-huh. you know what? It, time wise, um, he's not here. Like, I don't have any kids. Let's do this. Right. Game on. But I, I deep down I didn't think it was the best use of my skill set, being mm-hmm. you know having French and Spanish and all these other places. But you know I really wanted to go to Africa because in the really early days of my training, this great mentor, his name was Bill. I actually I, I asked him I said what if you could do it all over again what would you do? He's like small station in Africa because you get to do everything and you'll learn so much in that first year. So I kind of was, I thought, I thought that sounded really sexy. And I was like, that's, that's kind of what I want to do. So in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, I'll volunteer, but I really want to go to Africa. And when I got Africa, um, I was so excited. There it was. But it was just an intense moment because I'm sitting there like, yes. And then these other people are opening up things and they're crying. (laughs) (laughs) Their screams. I mean, it was... (laughs) <laughs> it was a, it was mayhem. I mean, it was really? like, yes. And so oh, anyway, we were all just like, you really, you really learned about people that day. And anyway, so after that, it was like the best summer of my life, doing all the fun stuff at Camp Perry, all the, the driving and medical and land nav and shooting. I mean, we didn't get to jump out of airplanes like they used to, but it still was very, very cool. Very so, cool. I mean, we lived in these dorms and I was just like, this is the summer camp I never got to go to as a kid and we'd played soccer every afternoon and you know some people hated that but I was like this is this is my my happy place you know so yeah. I really enjoyed that and and think fondly of it and then you know then it's just usually it's just a long hurry up and wait to go somewhere else but I it wasn't that for me I kind of waited to go to the place that was on my card but I got called into the chief's office and he was like I'm going to make
1: or break your career. Well, there's an interesting thought. And I was like,
2: yes, sir. He was like, I'm um, president wants to know what's happening in Sudan, South in Sudan with the Darfur peace agreement. And you're the only person that we have here that speaks French because we can't go to Sudan. We have to go through Chad because Sudan's not giving us any visas anymore. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yes.
1: <laughs> All right.
2: So I was super excited about that and had like a couple weeks. To figure that all out. And, and, you know, I went to REI. <laughs> I spent a shitload at REI. <laughs> I needed to, man. I, didn't, I got like this cool blow up mattress and.
0: We still have that. <laughs> <blow-up mattress.
2: laughs> we do. We do.
0: It's, it's red.
2: It's pink, pinkish red. Yeah. But the best thing I did was I walked across the aisle from the DO, Directorate of Operations, to the, the D, DI, the Directorate of Intelligence, mm-hmm. and talked to our friend, my friends, the analyst who, you know, how things are in the government. Nor- oh, yeah. They normally don't play nicely together. Right. I was naive and didn't really follow those rules. And I ended up being friends with the guy, you know, talking with them. And there's still some of them are some of my good friends, actually. And um, But I, I did this because I had a friend who was like one of my best friends from college who- was an analyst. So I, I, I kind of already knew I was familiar with her. I respected her. You know, she was super brilliant and great linguist. And I just knew what a resource she was. So I just thought, well, obviously, you know, they're probably similar extroverts and introverts, you know, on the other side kind of thing in some ways, you know, just generally speaking, it's not always the case, but I I went over and I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, to Chad and I'm going to work on this thing. And they were, they were like, oh, we just got back from there. And I'm like, well, great. And I sat down, I'm like, tell me everything, you know, and they're just like, please as punch because no one ever has them for right. this. Stuff. Yeah. And I, I'm just like taking notes and nodding and they're t- giving me all these insider, it you know, tips. And I'm like, this is great. Giving me books to read. I went and got all these books at the Barnes and Noble, read them all. <laughs>
1: You REI know? and Barnes yeah. and Noble. <laughs>
2: and there were only like three books on, yeah. on Sudan yeah. at the time or sure. four. So, I mean, I just was so excited and, you know, it just kind of boggled my mind a little bit though, that I was the only French speaker <laughs> available. That's just how French wasn't seemingly that important. But here I was like the first one out of my class to actually go out and do something real, you know, and after training, right. you know, people sure. had done real stuff before right. that, but sure. I was, everyone was shocked. They would see me. They're like, I heard you're going to, you know, it was like a big deal. And then I went out there and it was a, it was kind of a crazy experience, but the intent was to find the Sudanese rebels and ask them why they left the Darfur peace agreement. Mm -hmm. And I was in my mind, I was just like, all right, check. Seems like I can do that. And I got there. I quickly realized there were a lot of different cast of characters that My worst, my my worst enemies were going to be my own people, (laughs) (laughs) that were going to keep me from doing this. So it became several weeks of of finding the right people internally, and then building off of that those relationships to to leverage them to get to where I needed to go. And I I ended up sitting down and drinking a Pepsi with about fourteen Sudanese rebels on the border of Sudan, eastern. Eastern Chad. And um again, no pictures. <laughs> I could not. I wish I could have because it was like a, from a movie.
0: We have one picture.
2: Yeah, but that was that was before this meeting. Oh, that was yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just one.
0: In, in one Pepsi was not written Pepsi. It was in Arabic. Yeah, it's in, oh, yeah. it was in
2: chatty in Arabic, yeah. yeah. Or whatever. Maybe just a regular Arabic. I don't speak Arabic, but it um it ended up it was kind of like being in a movie a little bit because it's like I got picked up by this guy named Muhammad in this black car and transported to this compound. And um, I'm wearing a suit with another state department officer that I had befriended two females, both Emily (laughs) and we, we go to this compound. There's very, very young soldiers that greet us with, you know, the bullet, bullet belts and, you know, some heavy machinery (laughs) pointed at us and, walk into there and we sit down and, you know, Sydney's they speak English. So they, they spoke English. And I, I just remember being like, <clears throat> can you tell me why you left the Darfur peace agreement?
1: <laughs> well, let's just get right to it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I was, that's what it was. And then we had a long conversation about, you know, the message they wanted me to deliver to my president at the time, you know, uh, George Bush and um, a lot of other things that were, difficult for them. And, you know, the books I had read and all this stuff, you know, it's, it's simplistic, but complex at the same time, you know, there's good guys and bad guys. And they're often sometimes in the the same people and they're often doing for reasons that are related to basic human survival, like water, food, shelter. So it, again, it was like shades of Ecuador, but in a whole new like level of abject poverty and human suffering and violence. And um, I just, I remember going back from that meeting and just, we went to this bar. It felt like being in Star Wars in the middle of nowhere. It's like where a bunch of expats. It's like where everyone came together. You know, it's like all the traders and the the NGO workers. And I, I don't remember what the name of it was, but it had the best French bread.
1: There's something about French bread all over the oh, world. That's just crazy. like- mm, okay. It's like
2: almost hummus- fava yeah. bean dip. We we all got our own loaf of French bread and we ate it all. And I wanted another one afterwards. It was so good. It was the best thing I'd eaten in that country. And so we, after that, we went back to this. I was, it was just like this little room that the UN had, you know, extra rooms for people that are to spend the night. And it's just, I use my little RAI blow up 10 on the floor with my mosquito net. And I remember- I went outside to like call Jason on the sat phone that I had. They just, these things never worked. (laughs) You know, I was like, Hey, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I spent the whole time. And then that night the rebels are supposed to be running through where we were, where we were staying in Abishay. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I could die out of here. It sounds a little dramatic, but I mean, it felt like I was so far. I've never felt so far from home.
1: Off the edge of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, like I can. Mean, you've, you've just had French bread with the traitors from Tatooine. <laughs> like, seriously. In Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then you're off to, to, to your hooch with you, REI and thank God for Barnes and Noble.
2: <laughs> I did. I had those books <laughs> there. It, it,
1: it becomes a little surreal. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha.
2: And I was just, the, all I could think of that night, if I die I'm an Abishay, like how are they going to explain that to my mom? <laughs> Like, what is she going to think? Like, this is going to be crazy, you know, but I didn't die. There were no, the the rebels, if they ran through, they didn't bother me. I slept. (laughs) (laughs) The the mattress is really comfortable. And then next day went back and, you know, I came back and I, you know, wrote up my reports. And I didn't think this at the time, because like I said, I'm new Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking this is just how this job is. And this is a good start. Right, guys? I was like, Mm. I did what you told me to do. Check. And I came back and they were like, we can't believe you found those rebels. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things like I looked back and I, I actually had won the race or something, you know, and mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I had even and I didn't it wasn't like I did it for that. I actually I thought it was like more exciting when the if the job was just like that all the time, you know. You know, and I'm sure there everyone's got stories like that and, and there's other there's uh, other I, exciting I disa- parts. I
1: disagree with you. I don't think no? people that start off like that. Uh, coming right out of the schoolhouse, if you will, yeah. have that successful in action or that su- successful in operation, and yet it it falls back on the whole time I've been listening to you, I'm hearing this trait yeah. of leadership oh, yeah. all the way through, and intellect, interest mm-hmm. that that brings you through your your time in Jacksonville, your time in Ecuador, uh, your time in Cuba. God help us. <laughs> Uh, and and into service with the, the CIA and then thrown immediately into an operational assignment that probably warranted a senior person, not that you weren't qualified, but but warranted a senior right. person that would normally be called upon to go do that. And yet you did it and you were very successful. It's just continuing that line of success and more kudos to you um, for that.
2: Well, I will just add that, The success I had was listening to my fellow Americans that I learned to trust, right? That I, they were giving, I received a lot of advice before, during, and after, you know, that instance. And, and it was always people that were, had more experience and would took the time to pull me aside and say, Hey, this is not how this really is supposed to work. Just so you know. This is dysfunctional, and you need to navigate around the dysfunction.
1: You're you're bringing up something that's very dear to me, and that's (laughs) called mentorship. Mm -hmm. It's the mentors that you run into in your life that have been seriously helpful to you in your career, in your endeavors, whatever they might be. And it's not just you. it's, It's the world around. The mentors are the people that are most important. Yeah. Because they form who you become later on. And they help you adapt to situations. Right. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And I think your story just brings that out.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, you can have mentors in and, and all different ages. And it, it's really just about, I was willing to listen. Mm-hmm. And I was curious enough to ask. And it, 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 it's like, a, you know, everything's kind of like a puzzle to me. It's like, I don't really know what's going on here. There's more than meets the eye and I need to figure out how, you know, to meet my objective, but it's not going to be, I I realized very quickly, I could not do it head on.
1: I think you brought up something really important there. And that is that there's a lot of people that have mentors, but they don't listen and they don't ask questions of the mentors.
2: Mm -hmm. When you think back, like nobody told me, go meet with the analyst that is an expert on all things Sudan. I thought of that only because of, you know, one being friendly and from the saddle, you know, you just get to know people. Right. Sure. And then, but also, you know, I had an existing relationship with someone who I respected and, and then that grew. And then I realized, wow, why would I be, I'd be crazy to go, go to somewhere that I know nothing about and think I can just wing it. You know, i I need to like, not only read some books, but I need to talk to a real person who's been there. And they gave me advice that was invaluable that allowed me allowed me the access that I needed to get to the next level, which allowed me to meet the person that got me to the next level. You know it's one of those stories of like, you know those instances where it's like you just kept going, you know like Jason didn't stop with version one of year one when it sucked, and he wasn't happy right. with it when you know met an obstacle. It's like you just you just keep driving forward. You know, not to the point of like, you know, insanity, right? right? But to the point where it's like, I'm just not ready to give up on this yet, yeah. you know? And for me, it was like, hey, I, I'm here until Christmas, right? I'm going to, why? I'm not going to just sit around by the pool and be happy with that. One of my best allies, and um, I had a lot of allies, you know, mentors right. and people giving me good advice. A mentor can be someone who's just been there longer than you, right? Can be, and um sure when I first got to country, I was put in what I decided very quickly was the worst spot for me to be staying. And it felt like hotel Rwanda hmm. it was the nicest hotel in the middle of, um, in capital of Chad. And felt like if you were going to have someone blow yourself up, like blow themselves up, this is where this would be right. where it would be sure. or, you know, take some people hostage. and whatever. Cause that's, that's what it is. I, I actually tell people if they travel abroad, they're like, give me some advice. I'm like, don't go to these places. <laughs> so I got there and I was in, I spent one night there and I felt so uncomfortable. Kept looking out the window being like, I'm going to die here <laughs> and you know, just uneasy. And then right. the next day I, I just was like, I got to get out of there somehow. So I, I befriended this state department officer who's also named Emily. And you know, things happen fast when you're overseas, you know, it's everyone's you either love or hate each other real quick. Luckily we got along really well. And she said, I've, I got this big house. I'm kind of lonely over here. Like, can, you know, I wouldn't mind a roommate. We can bum around. I can show you, throw you the ropes. And I'm thought, this is the best thing that's happened to me, you know, since I arrived. So that's what happened. I checked out of the hotel and I got, you know, it wasn't like we just ran off to the rebels right then and there. We had to establish some rapport. And part of that meant we met the ambassador Every morning for a run in dusty, no shade, Chad would go really yep. early in the morning. And, you know, this is what you did there. Cause there wasn't a lot of things to do. So ambassador had small detail there, keep an eye on him, but nothing crazy. He was a cool guy. And, um, like, like people who are ambassador, you know, career diplomats in these far corners of the world often are, and, you know, a few other runners in the expat community showed up and we went on a long run and this is this is was this really cool cuz i felt right at home right and <laughs> this sure. and i also kept that up and kind of got in this inner circle quit pretty quickly so emily and i the other we, you know i she was e1 i was e2 and she showed me the ropes showed me good places to eat the good french yogurt to buy um remember we bought an eggplant at a market and grilled it one night for dinner
1: <laughs> cool
2: and uh you know Perfect. she was the one who just started introducing me to all her colleagues and yeah. local contacts, and one thing led to another, and then I finally kind of popped the question to her and said, "You know it really be nice if you could introduce me some Sudanese rebels <laughs> <laughs> so um she did nice because mess. you know why because she had been doing this hard work mm-hmm. for months, and she she wasn't jaded, but she was just real a realist about it, you know, in terms of what she had seen and told me like yeah you know unfortunately these food programs drop off food and then they you see them on the black market afterwards and that mm-hmm. money goes to supplying rebels so you know it's really sometimes it's hard to know <laughs> who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and who are just people trying to survive so really eye opening experience and we had a lot of talks there's a lot of you know downtime you know mm-hmm. and, and, and there's not a lot like i said there's not a lot to do so you talk to people And you have real conversations. And so, you know, she actually went on to leave the Foreign Service and to become a doctor because she wanted to work for Medicine Sans Frontieres, which Mm -hmm. comes back to what I originally got me interested in this in college. And I just admired her and respected her. And and she was a mentor of mine. Um, And she is a doctor today and doing great things whether it's through MSF or another another organization. But I I looked her up recently and she's doing some awesome stuff as I knew she would. You don't have to be Emily or speak French or work in Africa, but there's so many opportunities for everyone, women, men, you know, young and older to, to serve. And I just, the type of adventure that she was having, I was like, man, This is the life I want to lead. I want to be asking these tough questions. We have to understand, like, it's like being realistic about human nature, but not letting it completely demoralize you, right? Right. And still believing in good out there and still thinking that, because, you know, this woman, Emily, might've thought at this point in her career, like, I'm not making much of a difference, but she made it, she inspired me.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing that strikes me about your entire story that you've talked about this evening is throughout this whole process, it's all about service. Mm -hmm. And the people that you've known are all about service, the good ones. What advice would you have for people out there that feel moved? What advice do you have for those people?
2: I find people, and I tell them this whether they ask me or not, (laughs) 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 because it's that important. Well, Find someone that's done something that you, that that you find is amazing and that just really interests you and talk to them. Go talk to someone who served in the military and ask them about, you know, their experience. Go talk to someone who served in Peace Corps. Go talk to someone who served in the Foreign Service. Go talk to someone who's been a teacher their whole life. Ask them what, you know... What did they learn from it? And what were the best times? What were their, what was some one of their favorite moments? What was one of the worst moments? And this oral history, you know, connecting with other generations, if we have to work at it to not lose it, right? But to, to ask these people about these experiences, and then if it moves, you go do it. Don't worry about the student loans hanging over your head for too long. You know, don't wait for the perfect time. Because it's never going to come. You just need to follow your dreams and seize the day and all those things and, and and really do it. And then you'll know when it's time to go back and start paying those loans. <laughs> I see a lot of younger kids wondering what to do next. And I I was there. I know I've been in that moment of like, I'm not sure which direction I should go. I'm really glad I didn't, you know, stay in my marketing job in DC. I, I, I mean, I ended up, maybe I would have ended up back here in Jacksonville, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have had these, these adventures. I wouldn't have had these stories and I would have this itch just to, to get out and do that still. I wouldn't be, I mean, I can, I always tell people like the only reason I'm able to move back home and, and live this, you know, kind of, It seems simple by comparison to life because I I feel like I, I got out there when I, when it, when I really needed to. And now I come back and I appreciate, I appreciate the democracy we have. I appreciate the running water that we have. I appreciate that my family's close by and that, you know, we live in a place where corruption doesn't color every aspect of what we do, you know, and, and it's, it makes me, you know, it makes me think about those other things. And, and want to travel again. It's not like I've lost that desire, but, sure. it, but it definitely is. I don't need to live that life so intensely by this moment because I'm, I'm living, you know, for my children now.
1: And we appreciate your service and we'll have you back. Thank you, Rich.
0: That's a wrap on episode two of Glory's Professionals. I told you she had a great story to share. I'm sure it won't be the last time that M comes on the podcast in that format. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.